Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Epiphany in Lent, we are back in the Gospel of Luke, where we see God revealed in Jesus. As is common for Luke, what we see is the kingdom coming to all, but maybe most often to the unexpected. We'll see Jesus challenge his disciples, the rich young ruler and the proud religious leader, but commend a persistent widow, insist that the children come to him, and reveal that a blind beggar can see him for who he is even better than his own disciples. Finally, we will make our way with Jesus, his disciples, and the crowd around him as he enters Jerusalem on Holy Week long ago. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy the sermon. God bless. Did I turn it off? I did. I do that so much. I'm sorry. It's such a bad habit. Thank you. Were y'all able to hear the beginning? Do I need to start over? Okay, you heard me all right. Uh, Maybe not those who are watching with us online. You'll hopefully get the point still. So this man gets out of his car, and the the woman driving turns turns her car on, and she's like, we should leave. This maybe wasn't the best idea to get Taco Bell and eat in the parking garage of the Point Luxury Apartments. So she starts leaving, and this man gets back in his car, and starts following them, and then she looks in her rearview mirror, and all of a sudden there's red and blue lights flashing. And so, so she does what most sane people would do. She's like, oh man, this, I guess this is a policeman. Weird. Pulls over her car, and this man gets out of his car and makes his way over to her. Starts yelling that he was a federal officer, and that they needed to leave that garage immediately. So, you know, she leaves, but of course she also is like, this is really strange. And there were other people that saw the incident. So here's what happens. The man, he's not a federal officer. He's an impersonator. In fact, this man was one of your possible Pennsylvania U.S. senators. He was the independent um, candidate for the U.S. Senate for Pennsylvania, none other than Everett Stern. So he was charged the next month with impersonating an officer for disorderly conduct. And of course he was, right? What's he doing? What authority does this guy have? Flashing a red and blue flashlight at a car in front of him, pulling them over, yelling at them and telling them to leave. He had no authority to do that kind of thing. So Jesus, here's the thing. Jesus, you might remember, he's made his way into Jerusalem. We've been, over the last few weeks, saw him leave Jericho and make his way up. And he's entered Jerusalem last week, Palm Sunday itself. And our text here begins by saying that he was preaching, uh, or he was teaching the people in the temple, in the temple, and preaching the gospel. The good news of the forgiveness of sins in God. And um, he's taught this throughout his ministry, of course, and he's taught it all over. But now he's in Jerusalem itself, and he's in the temple itself, a place of power and a place of authority. And so these chief priests and scribes and elders, who are all part of, would have made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of, of uh, Jerusalem and the area, and the, the, especially the uh, religious body, 
Well, they were kind of like these women in the Jeep. They were like, this is really, this isn't good. Something strange. Is he an imposter? Is he an, an impersonator? What's going on? Who is this anyway? So they asked this question. What authority do you have? And who gave you this authority anyway? And I just think that's first, let's just say that's a really good question. Right? It is. Who do we say has authority? And why do they have authority? Why, why can they speak and something can be true and reliable and good and ought to be followed? And of course, what do we make of Jesus? What do we make of Jesus? Um, I mean, I've heard people, even actually very recently, even in the last month, I've heard somebody say that they really love the teachings of Jesus early on in his ministry. Stuff like the, the Sermon on the Mount. We can get behind that. But they weren't so, so much a fan of Jesus' later teachings, like the parable that we have here, parables of judgment. So, you know, maybe does Jesus have authority? Well, maybe we'll, we'll give him a little authority here, maybe a little less authority over here. How does Jesus have authority? Why does he have it? Who gave it to him? Uh, people say he can speak with some things with authority. But truth, like capital T truth, can't be found in him. I don't really think that's an option. If you turn to the inside cover of your bulletin, the first meditation quote is a rather famous quote from the book Mere Christianity. Lewis says this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who's merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Who says that anyway? This is the only context where I know of anybody saying that, but it's a good image. Or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. What Jesus did intend to say, though... So he has all authority. He has all authority. And that as such, you must follow him completely. That his teachings and his gospel that he was teaching there in the temple long ago. And his teachings today are absolute truth. And absolutely authoritative. Capital T truth is found in him alone. He is the light of the world. Showing what is true and showing what is false. Now, of course, you all and I are living in the same world, right? It's like, no, duh, obviously. What I want to suggest to you is that goes against all the waters that we swim in, though. Meaning the environment that we sort of take for granted, right? You don't ask a fish what's water. Like, it's just the stuff about them. The question of authority and truth, uh, how it's found and who has it, 
is one of the great questions of the world and even of our day now. And we must struggle with it. So let me give you just a few thoughts. Hopefully this doesn't get too deep. I'm going to try to keep it up. So following the Enlightenment, late 17th century, mid-17th century, mid-18th century, which is a very religious word, right? Enlightenment. Obviously, it's found in Buddhism, but also Christianity says Jesus is the light of the world. He's the light that shines in the darkness. Following the Enlightenment and the development then uh, really of, of rationalistic humanism, which is to say that human reason can, can bring about the good news in the world and in human reason alone, truth can be found. Um, which is also the re- reason why that same time period, the Enlightenment is called the age of reason, right? Because in human reason, has, uh, there's the possibility of truth. Well, that time said essentially that scientific reason was the arbiter of truth, which is to say it determined what could be, what could be said to be true or false. Now, this sets up all the dichotomies that all of us really know. Think about these. Reason versus revelation. Knowing versus believing. Fact versus value. Doubt versus dogma. Public versus private. Truth versus opinion. Objective versus subjective. And basically what the waters that we swim in still to this day say that Jesus falls into the latter category on all of those. Which is to say... Um, just like in our passage, they were all right with Jesus being somebody who taught something that was good as far as long as it was a long ways off. As long as it wasn't where they were really, where it would affect their lives. So keep Jesus private, keep him subjective, keep him in the value category, and that's fine. Don't bring him into the public square and into public discourse. So Jesus. This is what I'm suggesting to you. Um, Jesus is sort of like strawberry ice cream. Who likes strawberry ice cream here? Okay. Well, I think chocolate's better. Maybe y'all didn't get that. Um, Which is to say that we've decided that truth and reason can sort of be um, an autonomous thing that is outside of personal commitment and personal value. And community, right? So, so truth is something that is sort, sort of just in the context of reason. And it can be outside of tradition and outside of community. What's been shown actually by a good deal of philosophers in the last 50 years or so is that uh, reason itself and scientific reason itself, itself exists within the context of community, which has authority structures and tradition, which all exist within the context of faith. Some of you, of course, have heard of philosophers like Michael Polanyi that has argued that um, pretty convincingly, which is to say that there's always faith commitments. Okay, now I think that we still largely live in this world. Everything I probably just said to you, you're like, yeah, I think I've sort of swam in that a little bit, okay? Uh, We live in this world of enlightenment, rationalistic humanism. But also, most of us live in sort of a dual world of modernist, rationalistic humanism, and sort of a postmodern, which uh, is a fuzzy word, postmodernism, which I think rightly gets at the idea that truth is found within the context of community, but then it limits that community to human community. And so the great question of most postmodern philosophers is power structures. Language is power, is Foucault. I'm getting probably two up here. I'm going to go down here a little bit more, maybe. Um, 
But here's the idea. Truth claims are largely rel uh, related to power structures. And so the big thing that we have to deal with now is who has power and who doesn't have power. And if we can just sort of do away with all the people that have power, then maybe a community can exist, exist for the truth of all people within that community, but not outside of that community. Okay, here's the thing. Public life in either of these contexts say, Jesus, you have to be outside because we don't want to have anything to do with faith. But both of these, because they exist within community and traditions, demand faith. Okay, claims of authority and truth are based within community and tradition and therefore belief. And every one of these is actually hoping for a light that shines in the darkness. This is a really interesting thing is that largely modernism was saying and the Enlightenment was saying actually human progress and, and light can shine in the darkness of the world if human reason can figure it out. The light will be pushed out if power structures are done away with according to our current idea of truth. So does light come from Jesus? Well, he's just relegated to the sidelines. Okay, maybe too much to digest. Maybe I didn't make that clear enough. But what I'm suggesting to you is that the very question that they're asking of Jesus is the same question we're all asking all the time. Where did you get your authority? Why do you have any bearing on my life? Why are people listening to you? What is truth anyway? It's not a question that's unique to Jesus' day, the dynamics of Israel. It's a question for us now. It's a perpetual question. So what does Jesus say? How does Jesus answer them? You know? By what authority do you do these things? Who's given you this authority? Uh, we're going to get to a little bit of a clearer answer from Jesus. But what I want you to sort of relish in for a moment is uh, that Jesus does what he almost always does. Which is not really answer their question very clearly. <laughs> Um, he never seems to answer it terribly directly. He, he, he does answer it, and I'm, I want to get to that. But what Jesus is always doing is he's telling something in such a way that makes you actually have to wrestle and think and struggle and wonder. Which is to say, as Eugene Peterson puts it, he's telling it slant, sideways. So it hits you and makes you go, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? He doesn't want them to assume that the givens of their world and sort of the discourses of their world are just sort of, you know, the givens. Hey, you just answer it like this and we'll kind of have a dialogue, which is part of the reason why I think we actually have to sort of get into this idea of what is the world that we live in and how do we swim in terms of what is truth. Um, anyway, Jesus is getting at the answer, but he tells it slant. He's not uh, direct. And this is entirely intentional. And we see this in Jesus all the time. So this is what Jesus says, which I love. I'll ask you a question. <laughs> now tell me. That's what he says. That's so good. It's just like not, it's not what you expect, right? Oh, here's the authority that I have. Now he's like, now you answer me, guys. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? 
And all of us immediately are like, what is this conversation? Why is he talking about John the Baptist now? What sort of question is this? And it's sort of like a press conference when somebody's being asked some questions and they obviously are feeling uncomfortable with the questions. And they get, we get a little dialogue there, you know, what's going on in their minds. But the bottom line is they come back to Jesus and they go, we don't know. Let's just get out of here because this is weird. He just asked us a question when we asked him a question. How's this happening? And, you know, I think it may be tempting for us to just think that Jesus is kind of like parlaying with these guys, having fun with them. Um, But no, he wants them to think. And and what he actually does want them to do is ponder, what happened with John? What is this John the Baptist story? Uh, Because Jesus' own ministry, you might remember, begins with John. His public ministry begins with the ministry of John. And his public authority is given at his baptism when he was baptized by John. But his authority was not because John baptized him, but because of what happened when John baptized him. Right? The descent of the very spirit of God in the form of a dove. And the voice from heaven that spoke over Jesus saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And that is his authority. The voice from heaven itself speaking and giving him his authority. The father saying to the son, you are my son. With you I'm well pleased. So he's trying to tell it slant so they'll actually start to put things together and to sit and to think. Maybe Jesus' voice and maybe his authority, maybe his teaching and maybe his gospel is actually from heaven. And we ought to give ourselves to it. But then he goes on to tell a parable. It actually says he began to tell all the people. Which, of course, gives you a little insight into the situation. These people are coming up to Jesus when he's in the context of a large crowd. And initially he speaks to them. But then he talks to every, everyone, them included. And he says this. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now, we live in a different world today, but then everybody's ears would have started to perk up. They would have done that for two reasons. The first reason is that Israel was an occupied territory. And, and we actually know that there were lots of people, namely Ro- Roman authorities and people uh, in power in Rome, that would have had, that did have lots of land in occupied Israel. And they would have largely lived their life elsewhere. Um, and Jesus is grabbing onto some of this idea that everybody would have been familiar with. It's sort of like, you know, a couple weeks ago I mentioned that Jesus is walking from Jericho uh, west up the mountain towards the hill of Zion, Jerusalem. And he, there's that road that goes off down south where Herod's summer uh, residence was. And he begins to tell the story of Herod and his son who went to Rome to get power. You know, I mean, so Jesus is grabbing onto ideas that everybody went, but it w- would have been familiar with. So their ears perk up, perk up. But that's not the main reason. The main reason is that they would have all known that in Israel's sacred texts in the Old Testament, the one who owns the vineyard is always God. And his vineyard is his people. We saw a little bit of that from Isaiah chapter 5 that Melise read. Um, There's an analogy going on in the Old Testament often about this vineyard and the one who owns it and the ones who are to care for it, the leaders of Israel, So all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, he's talking about God, and he's talking about Israel, his people, and he's already bringing in the people who are supposed to be caring for it, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. 
This is going to get good. So Jesus continues. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. If you actually were listening to Isaiah pretty attentively, that passage mentions the fruit being justice and righteousness. Okay. Um, But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat Uh, But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Now here's something else everybody would have known in the context of the people who are there in Jerusalem at the time. The servants, in this great analogy of the vineyard, were always the prophets of Israel. They were coming to Israel and saying, follow the Lord. Bear fruit of justice and righteousness and mercy. And what happened to the prophets again and again and again is that actually some of them literally were beaten. But most of them were just completely disregarded. Israel and her leaders wanted to live as though they had authority alone. Not God and his messengers. We have authority. We can do whatever we want. Get away, you servants of the landowner. Let's continue. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, which by the way is the exact wording in the Greek as what you find in Luke chapter 3 when he's baptized, the exact words. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Keep in mind, Jesus is answering their question. Their question of authority. And he's using an image they knew all too well. God, the vineyard owner... He sends his prophet after prophet after prophet to tell his people, to tell his leaders to follow him, to find in him their truth, their bearing, their authority, their life, their light. And again and again, they say, no, we're doing just fine. We've got this figured out. See you later. Jesus is saying the authority he has He too has from the Father. The very things he does and the things that he says is because he is the beloved son. And what we learn is they'll have none of it. They'll have none of it. They're going to throw him out and kill him. And how does our passage this morning end, actually? Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. I mean, this may be a, an analogy, um, but it is mirroring current history. Literally, they are doing right then the very things that the story was saying. The tenants do take the son outside of the city and they kill him. 
They're about to do that that very week. And their resolve for doing so is growing minute by minute as the week continues on. Their thought is that if they can kill the son, they'll have the vineyard. They'll have the say. They can do what they want. And what I want to suggest to you is that, of course, this text is getting at this question of authority and truth and and what's right and who has it. But what this passage is also getting at is the human plight. I mean, the number one human problem. Um, I've read that Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am, knowledge based on human possibility and human reason, and knowledge that directs your life based on those things, led to Nietzsche's God is dead and we've killed him. Um, But what you have to understand is this plight here in this passage, this problem of these chief priests and these scribes and these elders Um, isn't just a problem for them, and it's not just a problem for sort of uh, the modernist that wants to say, hey, I have autonomy, don't tell me what to do, I can figure things out. Or the postmodernist that says, hey, truth only exists within community, and I can be a community of myself to determine what's right. It's not just that. This is a plight of humanity. This is all of our problem. And this is really like the problem of the Bible right here. We want God dead because we want to do what we want to do. We want to own the vineyard, decide what happens. Often we Christians would like God dead rather than a living God. Think Adam and Eve who walked with God in the garden, saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes and to be desired. And they said, Yeah, this is better than life with him. And that's what we do every time we're sinning. God, die. Go away. Let me do whatever I want. You and I do the very same thing. And that's why, of course, Christians have always said it's not just the scribes. And the elders and the chief priests that killed Jesus. It's me. And it's you that crucified the very beloved son of God. Because we want to say, yeah, this little part is for me only. I don't want to give it to this landowner. We want to control God. We want to put him down to size. We want to manage him. We don't want to do his rule. We don't want his authority. We don't want him to have some capital T truth say over the world. You uh, likely know where uh, modernism went to die. Uh, It's been said that modernism went to die, though it's still kicking, uh, on the battlefields of World War I, where there were some 40 million casualties. You know, not quite 200 years after the Enlightenment, the age of reason. 
the great possibility of humankind. And of course, so many marriages go to die on the belief that each individual can do and be whatever they want to do and be in the world. So many lives are taken on the belief that they alone know what's best for themselves. God be damned. As long as Jesus stays away from the vineyard, your vineyard, hey, let's let him live. I mean, that's what the scribes and the elders and the chief priests thought. Just keep away from Jerusalem. Don't come into this public square of the temple demanding any kind of authority. You'll be all right. Once he demanded that authority, he's got to die. C.S. Lewis in another book called Miracles wrote this. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own hearts, heads. Better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap. Best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when, a ch when the children who have been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant for it to come to that. We're still supposing he found us. See, a God who does nothing, who's just distant, some distant landowner, a God who demands nothing, a God who we can control, and um, maybe we can give him some relatively small investments of our time and energy, our money, but largely a God who lets us be, right? We're fine with that. Pretty much everybody's fine with that kind of thing. As long as your God is just for religion, just for some subjective experience, for your own personal values and privately held beliefs, totally fine. But this landlord, listen to this, okay? This landlord planted this vineyard. It was his vineyard. It's his. Uh, he bought it. He planted it. He provided for it. And he graciously gave some to these tenant farmers who could produce, who could sell some of their produce, who could live off some of it. He gave them an opportunity to earn their living by working in his lovely vineyard. And it was a privilege to, to work for that landowner and to work in that vineyard. Uh, they weren't hired laborers. They weren't. They had real power. They were tenants who shared in the profits of this vineyard. But the landlord sent his servants to collect what was rightfully his. And they wanted nothing of it. They beat his very son. This point should be clear to all of us. This isn't just about the elders and the scribes and the chief priests. 
This is about us. This is about us. And Jesus told them this parable slant to get them thinking. Um, And here's the thing. I'll kind of close with this. We actually know that many of the very leaders of Israel became Christians. You You know, I've said this a couple times. Luke wrote two books. They basically wrote one book in two big chapters. The book of Luke in the book of Acts. Who's the number one character in the book of Acts? Paul. One of the leader of leaders of Israel. Who we know is actually standing over one of the sort of church's prophets, Stephen, as he was being stoned to death. And this man, Paul, becomes the one who champions the gospel of Jesus. What I'm suggesting to you is that Jesus is teaching in the, in the temple and he's preaching the gospel and he's challenging their authority, but he does so in such a way, and I hope this is what you hear this morning, he does so in such a way that they get thinking and they start to wonder, wait, a vineyard owner like that could love me? His son would actually die for me. Maybe they started to put the pieces together that day. Maybe Saul was right there in the temple that day. Totally possible. And he put it together that the stone which they were rejecting right then rose from the dead and became the chief cornerstone. And it was marvelous in the Lord's eyes. And they said, you know, all this deciding that I get to be the arbiter of truth, that I can figure it out in my own head or that I don't need God, That's gotten me nowhere. Maybe this whole vineyard owner, maybe this beloved son, maybe it's in him that I can find real life, life life-giving life, real truth, life-giving truth. And many of them gave themselves to that story and their lives were entirely changed The invitation is for us this morning. It is. In this world where we struggle with this idea of truth and authority, the invitation is to see it's found in Jesus. In Jesus alone. The stone which the builders rejected, Christ himself became the cornerstone. I hope it's marvelous in all of our eyes. Let's pray together. Lord, Jesus, we're, we're thankful that you tell, tell it slant. God, I pray that each one of us would contemplate today these things. That we're just like these tenants so often. That Adam and Eve's action long ago is the action that we do all the time. That the desire of modernist Uh, rationalistic humanism for autonomy apart from you is what we're doing all the time. God, but I pray that you would show us that that's getting us nowhere. But that life, 
and beauty and goodness and truth is found in you alone, Jesus. The one who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, was cast out to that hill outside of the city to die among the criminals. A perfect life lived, a criminal's death died. But then you rose and you've become the cornerstone. Lord, we worship you and we adore you this morning. We pray, Lord, that today as we uh, leave this place and as we um, go about our, our day and our week, that we would think on these things. Think on how we run after other uh, places to give us meaning and truth and authority but that it's only found in you, Lord. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.